Welcome to the Center for Thomistic Studies Colloquium Series Podcast. Each episode of our Colloquium Series Podcast features a member of the Center or visiting scholar presenting a philosophical paper on a subject of their research. In this episode, we will hear Dr. Stephen DeLay, an independent scholar, giving a talk entitled Jean-Yves Lacoste, From Being in the World to Living Before God. And without further ado, our podcast. Well, I just want to extend my thanks to Dr. Osborne for having me, and it's a nice opportunity to be able to share some work with you. So thank you for making the time to be here. Uh, John just told me that I have uh, maybe less time than I thought I was if I want to reserve time for discussion, which of course I, I do. So what I'm going to do is probably read, and at some point I'm going to have to collect myself and decide where I want to skip ahead. And uh, if there seems like there's a missing chunk in the reasoning, that's probably why. And we can maybe pick it up later in discussion or something. But I'll just have to play it by ear and decide how I want to do that. Uh, the, the paper today itself is um, a chapter from the book. Um, the subject is a, a, a French philosopher, a phenomenologist. Uh, his name is Jean-Yves Lacoste. He's fairly well known within the phenomenological community. I don't know how well he's known outside that. So um, today's paper is, is, is mainly expository just to kind of pick up some key themes in his thinking and just try to unpack them. And uh, my, my hope is that maybe that'll generate some discussion, but uh, we'll see what happens. So. The thought of Jean-Yves Lacoste, perhaps typified most definitively by his 1994 work, Experience in the Absolute, Questions Concerning Humanity of Man, a treatise that will command our attention in what is to come, attempts to resuscitate a venerable philosophical question, but in a distinctly phenomenological key. What, Lacoste will ask, is our essence as human beings? What is the distinctive feature marking the humanity of man? We know that for Heidegger, who will exercise a powerful but ambivalent influence on Lacoste's own thoughts on the matter, such a question amounts to one of place. To ask the question of who we are is, whether we recognize so or not, to pose the question of where we are. And to resolve the problem of who we are, we must know from whence we have come and where, if anywhere, we are headed. As for the early Heidegger's philosophy of Dasein, the answer to that question is no secret. We are inextricably inscribed within the world, says Heidegger, abandoned to a horizon projected by our cares and concerns, our anxieties and burdens. In short, a place ultimately determined by a time whose underlying sense of finality and transience is the consequence of a death always already present as our most intimate and inevitable possibility. For the Heidegger of being and time, to be who we are is hence to be someone whose mode of being is being in the world. We are in the world insofar as we are involved in it, overtaken by it, immersed within it, and not as figures from the history of philosophy like Descartes might sometimes suggest, in the sense in which a gift is in a box. The world is not first a location spatially extended in the geometric sense, but rather a milieu that has taken possession of us, inasmuch as it fascinates us, drawing us in, and setting us upon a stage where we see to our daily tasks and routines. As Lacoste comments on our place in the world, quote, this tells us, then, that being there is being in, 
that our relation with the world demands to be thought as inherence, end quote. For Lacoste, unlike the Heidegger of the 1920s, however, we should not rest content with the notion that man's sole place is that of the world. Lacoste, in fact, will test that fundamental presupposition of the existential analytic with the express aim of subverting it so as to overcome it. Though we find ourselves thrown into the world, and though we will always remain embodied within it, and thus to some extent preoccupied with what we must confront within it, Lacoste's phenomenology will deny that the world is the final horizon of human experience. Man's highest possibility, he will contend, does not lie squarely in the world, but at its margins. At the margins of the world is a place determined by something more than what the anxiety of care, subject to death, opens to us. To see why and how Lacoste will contend that the Heideggerian conception of our finite condition need not have the final say about the bounds of our emplacement, it bears rehearsing the crucial elements of the view he will preserve. The feud between Husserl and Heidegger is here instructive, since Lacoste's own position will borrow, will borrow elegantly from both, while leaving neither completely unchanged. Quote, consciousness, he observes with Heidegger against Husserl, does not create the opening of Dasein. On the contrary, this opening is the first condition for the exercise of consciousness, end quote. Our native condition is one of inherence in the world, just as Heidegger says, to such a considerable extent, in fact, that consciousness itself is only able to encounter what it does insofar as a more fundamental entwinement between ourselves and the world is already presupposed. Following a critique of Husserl that Heidegger developed in the 1920s, Lacoste notes, quote, the world has already taken possession of Dasein prior to any conscious action or awareness. Open to the world, Dasein cannot, in this respect, avail itself of any form of protection from it." End quote. Before what Husserl would name transcendental consciousness can constitute an object for perception or memory or thought or whatever else, one must already be situated in a world. Consciousness, Lacoste will insist with Heidegger, is not the primitive source of our access to the world, but rather that which already presupposes that we are in possession of it. This mode of being in the world exhibits a paradox, however. On the one hand, we are ensconced within the world without our having arrived here from elsewhere. And yet, on the other hand, that nativity is characterized by an irrepressible restlessness. Heidegger's celebrated analyses of anxiety illustrate this well, noting as they do the uncanniness of Dasein's inscription within the world. For although we find ourselves initially nowhere else, we inhabit the world by never feeling quite at home there. There is a persistent unsettledness about things. Even in occupying our place in the world, then, we end up still somehow always feeling out of place. Man, to use a term from Heidegger's later philosophy that Lacoste himself likewise employs, does not dwell in the world as though he were at ease and at peace, but instead resides there as a foreigner does in an unfamiliar land. Quote, this, and this is Lacoste, Quote, the status of the foreigner defines man essentially rather than accidentally, even though he neither comes from elsewhere nor is going anywhere else, end quote. Some of you might, there's an Augustinian resonance there, maybe, but. The Heideggerian, Heideggerian logic of place indicates a distinction that, though perhaps present implicitly in 1927, was never formulated there directly. We mean the notion of the earth. 
Where the world is a place in which we are restless, the earth is a place of serenity. Lacoste highlights the difference between the world and earth this way, quote, and the earth is contradistinguished from this opening to which is opposed as originary difference by revealing itself as that which shelters and protects, end quote. If the earth shelters and protects the beings that inhabit it, man himself is no exception. Dwelling on the earth, we find ourselves at home in a way Dasein had not in the world. After 1930, then, a fundamental shift in the Heideggerian logic of human existence in place arguably occurs, no longer defined by a transcendental restlessness and ejected into an uncanny journey through an inhospitable world from which we cannot escape, human existence is reconceptualized in new terms, no longer those of anxiety and unease, but instead in accordance with the notions of tranquility and peace. As Lacoste observes, quote, anxiety as a fundamental mood will be succeeded by joy and, in later texts, serenity, end quote. In the world, he notes, there is nothing sacred. There is only the mundane and the instrumental. There is the rigmarole of our routines, like the daily commute to work or standing in line at the cafe for lunch, the tasks and demands replete with our concerns and worries, our regrets and fears, but there is nothing truly transcendent or worthy of adoration. This world of cares consumes like a vortex, even if, or precisely because, we know that none of it fundamentally matters. Everything is ordered around the principle of fulfilling a project which, even when completely su completed successfully, never brings with it a sense of ultimate completion. We are always left in a state of dissatisfaction. We feel ourselves inevitably deferred to a new goal or project or task, and in turning ourselves to that new end, we already know that regardless of what that future brings, we will never be able to resolve the fundamental ambiguity of how we might find whatever it is we are seeking. Rest eludes us, for we know ourselves to be groping in the dark. I have a section here where I discuss a little bit about how this Heideggerian conception of serenity is supposed to kind of address that issue, but I'm just going to skip it, skip ahead. The later Heidegger thus alters his perspective on place. The logic of existence is not said to be inescapably consigned to the horizon of care, and hence the fundamental attunement of anxiety, but instead to the horizon of thinking and dwelling on the earth. A serene existence becomes possible. At peace with his surroundings, man as a mortal stands open to the wonder of dwelling under the sky, on the earth, and among the divinities. This is this Heideggerian notion of what's called the fourfold. Existence is no longer instrumental and materialistic, but sacral and enchanted. Now, however, as Lacoste hastens to note, Heidegger is not aiming to resuscitate a doctrine of the earth as the Christian's God creation. Heidegger, to the end, remains a fundamentally pagan thinker. So the mortal who resides among divinities does not recognize a creator outside creation, but rather relates to the divine within the everyday. The earth, thus, no less than the world, presupposes the death of the Christian God. The mortal is among divinities, but without God. Pausing at this point in his analysis, he's summarizing Heidegger's position, Lacoste emphasizes that, quote, we are justified then in departing from the terminology adopted by Heidegger, and we will say that in the field of experience, the fourfold attempts to thematize, mortals become acquainted with an, in, uh, with an imminent sacred, but not with a transcendent God. Just as Dasein was without God in the world, mortals live without God in the fourfold, and is by no means certain 
that the God for which they wait is worthy of the name. End quote. From being in the world, he continues, quote, to dwelling on the earth serenely in the midst of the fourfold, where the deities and mortals exist side by side, the path is thus not that which would lead from an atheistic experience to a liturgical experience of place, but that which leads to the unveiling of a, quote, pagan moment of facticity, end quote. Hence, even in the transition from the figure of anxious Dasein to serene mortal, man's place, whether it be world or earth, is one away from God. Here still at issue is a godless place. Quote, Mrs. Lacoste, the topological entailed no relation to God, no presence before God, or as we will say from now on, no liturgy, end quote. Challenging the Heideggerian conception of, of man then, Lacoste will offer an account of what it means to exist, not in terms of being exiled to a mode of being in the world necessarily without God, but instead as someone who is capable of electing to concern himself with God. If our native condition is for Lacoste one in which we find ourselves originally ignorant of God, it is owing to our capacity to freely choose to seek God that we may discover our human vocation as the ones who are able to live before God. I have a sort of a side about a, somebody else who kind of has a discussion of this, but we can leave that aside. For Lacoste, Facing up to this freedom to choose what kind of existence we will live requires locating the genuine place of man's humanity as outside the world or earth, starting from an absolute future before God instead. Such a choice is not something that takes place once and for all, but rather a commitment which, once resolved, must be continually accomplished through an act of ongoing endurance. For Lacoste, we are free not only because we may choose a destiny, but because we can accomplish that choice. What is to be said about such a place, since it is not immediately evident to the one who chooses to try to remain content with only the world or the earth? To make a start, it would appear necessary to reappraise the phenomenological reduction. Lacoste will do exactly that, reformulating the reduction so as to transgress the limits of both its transcendental and ontological precursors. In their stead, he, he proposes what he calls the, the liturgical reduction, which, without ever denying our inheritance in the world, at once allows us to take our distance from it. Quote, liturgy is the bracketing of being in the world, end quote. By liturgy, Lacoste does not primarily or only signify the rituals of ecclesial worship. Instead, he means anything at all that concerns our relating ourselves to God. No longer tracing beings back to the transcendental subjectivity said to constitute them, as in Husserl, nor reconducting beings back to their being, as in Heidegger, the liturgical posture is one through which training our attention on a region neither delimited by the anxiety of concern nor funneled into the serenity of a dwelling on the earth, we stand open to a horizon beyond the earth and the world. Here, Laid bare by a desire for something exceeding the limits of the time that leads to death, man submits himself to the presence of God. Exposed in our most intimate and vulnerable depths, we exercise our capacity to live quorum Deo. Quote, This novel conception, says Lacoste, can be expressed succinctly. The experiential practice of liturgy can open up a space where neither world nor earth is interposed between man and God. End quote. Neither in the mode of Dasein or mortal 
we accede to a form of life that recognize, recognizes and hence enacts an awareness of our status as creatures. And for Lacoste, there is accordingly more. Upon entering this new territory, we, discovers our, we discover ourselves to be pilgrims, beings whose sense of temporality is now directed to an eschaton beyond death. Man's place is redefined as pointing toward an absolute future lying beyond the finite temporal horizon of the world. Lacoste could not be less blunt about this key departure from Heidegger. Quote, the liturgical subversion of the topological cannot thus be thought here nor anywhere, except in terms of the eschaton, or in any case, in terms of eschatological uh, anticipation. End quote. Interpreting the dialectic of world and earth, liturgy reveals more to place. Through this act of bracketing, liturgy is the, quote, resolute, deliberate gesture, end quote, by which no longer remaining content to live out our possibilities as a being in the world determined by death, we choose to assume a mode of existence before God. Nothing can compel us to do so, for it is a free choice. Quote, our inheritance in the world or the shelter given to us by the earth can suffice to qualify what we are, we can choose to exist solely in the mode of Dasein or in that of mortal. But just as we are free to affirm the existence of an absolute who is someone with whom a relation has been promised, so we can choose to exist in his presence, to expose ourselves to him." End quote. That we are capable of electing to bracket the world to face God underscores, as anyone who has attempted to do so himself will know, that even if not everyone chooses to exercise such a capacity, we are fundamentally defined by it. To refuse to use the capacity does not invalidate its, invalidate its existence, but only accentuates its omnipresence. The world and earth are not the only horizons for human existence. More is available to us if we would choose to seek it. Quote, by giving itself from within the world, a horizon not of the world, liturgy proves that the world is not intranscendable, end quote. When we neutralize the world by directing our attention to God, the world of concern no longer envelops us. We temporarily stay its power to preoccupy and consume us. Rather than exhausting our attention in pursuits concerning the surrounding environment of everyday life, we bracket those efforts, resisting the world's solicitations, and thereby affirming our desire to exist before God instead. We take time for God rather than everything else. Whereas standing before the presence of God certainly involves a degree of peacefulness simply absent in the world or earth, the end to which we direct ourselves in doing so, communion with God, is nevertheless characterized by an incompletion. We have something to do with God, where before we did not at all, yet God's presence is not yet realized fully as we wish that it would be. Hence, by opening a place where we grapple with God, liturgy transplants us into an eschatological time, a time of hope, trust, endurance, and patience, a time that marshalling our innermost being toward an end that must remain a yearning only exacerbates, rather than assuages, our sense of distance from our desired end. The eschaton is not yet here, for it remains present in the mode of anticipation. Thus, the restlessness of care is alleviated insofar as we are not handed over to anxiety's vicissitudes, Yet we are not entirely delivered from the same unsettledness that serenity had attempted, but failed to suppress. We realize that we cannot be at home in the world or the earth, 
precisely because we seek a God who is ambiguously present, but still outside our reach. As a result, we find ourselves in an ambiguous condition. Liturgy, which releases us from the homesickness characterizing being in the world, nevertheless involves a heightened sense of not being at home. For, no longer restless in the world, we rest in the hope of a desire whose end is not yet here. In awaiting a fulfillment still to come, existence assumes the form of a promise. Quote, We spoke of liturgy to indicate a possible leave from the world and earth, a new term of theological origin used to indicate schematically what is played out in ease. One will say it is a sabbatical experience. End quote. Lacoste suggests that we can profitably interpret our presence before God in reference to the pilgrim. Inherence within time comes to be understood as a passage of non-belonging. Facing God, we are struck by, quote, the foreignness of his presence everywhere, end quote. Because we are seeking the company of God who is veiled from the world in ambiguity, Lacoste names this middle presence between total occlusion and unvarnished uh, appearing the uh, chiaroscuro, it follows that, quote, every land offers itself to him as a homeland. Because no loca location is ours to the exclusion of others, we have no overriding allegiance to any given territory or nation. Every location, paradoxically, is ours precisely to the extent that none is. One can only feel alienated from geography to which one desires to belong but has been refused, and hence, by ceding one's belongingness to every land, we in a way belong to all of them, since they all equally fail to define our interests. We desire any such place as little as we do the next. So, though we are still in the world, immersed in our embodied concerns and needs, such as hunger, thirst, and shelter, our stance to this milieu of needs is subsidiary. Unlike those who do not exert real effort to deny themselves, and who consequently lead lives of shallow excess, the liturgical man is freed from the illusions of the world. We see there is more to being human than the desire for more or uh, the desire for more or for the petty struggles for prestige and status. Liturgy over, uh, overcomes the regime of lust. Quote, the relation to place, notes Lacoste, is a relation of indifference, end quote. Laying aside uh, the things of the world as the apostle Paul describes in the first letter to the Corinthians, the pilgrim sets his eyes on better things. The, confer the, the conversion from either being in the world or dwelling on the earth to existing before God ruptures what we had theretofore taken without question as ordinary. It bears recounting the logic of the reversal more closely. To begin with, it will be noted that our existence according to Lacoste is originally atheistic. Man's primitive condition, at least for us, all of us born on this side of the fall, is one of separation from God. The transcendental structure of experience, he thus contends, involves no immediate relation to the absolute. Commenting on such nascence, he remarks, quote, Dasein exists in the world without God. This does not presume the non-existence of God, but teaches only that the world as world draws a veil between Dasein and God, end quote. To stand before God is not a structural feature of existing as a human, but instead an excess, something that we can access only through a surfeit above our native facticity. Quote, we will never necessarily exist before God, not even by virtue of a necessity unbeknownst to us, end quote. Or again, quote, our exposition to God is thus radically distinct 
from our opening unto the world and that it speaks to us, not the language of facticity, but the language of an experience of surplus grounded in a divine donation or in an unveiling that we ourselves must undertake. End quote. Before it has been graced, human facticity is a transcendental atheism. The consequence is that if so, our original condition is one in which God is veiled from us, shrouded in a transcendental ignorance that renders him at most ambiguously present. Far from being immemorial, our relation to the absolute is something we accede to through an act of freedom. For Lacoste, who thinks from a theological perspective that sees the fall as having deformed the image of God and man, we are initially estranged from God. Lacking Adam's intimate familiarity with God, our condition is, quote, a transcendental disinterest of man for God, end quote. If, he continues, quote, the one who existed without God in the world discovers that he in fact lost or forgotten a familiarity with the divine that also defines his being, end quote, such forgetting is the inescapable inheritance of what it is to be born always already lost, alienated from God. Must this spiritual death grip us? As we have intimated far from it, liturgy elevates us above despair by re redirecting us to an end transcending the boundaries originally imposed by death's horizon. In turn, the question becomes this. If, our natural condition, if in our natural condition we find ourselves without God, how does God become present? If the world shrouds God in the chiaroscuro, so that God's presence is never a matter of unreserved revelation, what are we to make of this strange, partial presence? Lacoste's own answer is to say that God is unveiled, quote, in the expectation or desire for the parousia and the certitude uh, of his, of his non-presence, of the non-presence of God, end quote. God comes to us in our anticipation of a fuller revelation. Hope for the eschaton opens the field of liturgy. The eschaton is made present to us in the form of the promise. Confidence in what awaits beyond the time that leads to death sustains us. Unlike Heidegger, for whom death is the unconquerable, according to Lacoste, the one who undertakes a liturgical life learns that, quote, death ceases to be the final reality to which we can reconcile ourselves by making of it our highest possibility, as Heidegger believes, end quote. This overcoming of death is most perspicuously accomplished in prayer, Quote, liturgy proposes a mode of experience in which death is no longer the secret of life. Are we to exist for God or for death? End quote. In prayer, death is subordinated in the present, uh, as in a sense of the gift. I'm playing on presence and present, right? Prayer benefits the one who chooses to engage in it by freeing us from the concerns of daily life, vouchsafing the promise of a triumph in the kingdom to come where the vexations of injustice and suffering will be no more, the righteous, and only they, will at last shine. Basking in the gentle assurance of this anticipated victory, we do not thereby ignore our mortality as though it were nothing. Rather, we simply assign it the relative status it deserves. For those who are willing to subject themselves to an existence in the presence of God, death remains a fact of life, but they know better to think, as those still lost in the world or distracted by the charms of the earth do not, that it is not the essence of existence. Immediately, an objection will be raised. 
How can liturgy be the consummation of man's highest calling if it demands a peculiar disinterest in the world? Does it not involve a quietism or an escapism, an aloofness that ends in moral complacency? How can we be genuinely, genuinely ethical if, taking leave of the world, we seem to sever our connection with others? Far then from defining our most intimate form of humanity, would not liturgy render us inhuman, or sorry, inhumane, and hence inhuman? Lacoste is aware of the objection, and he goes to considerable efforts to meet it. According to him, quote, the diversion that liturgy has as its task is perhaps alone in permitting us to rigorously ground the ethical meaning of our facticity, end quote. Far from stifling our ethical vocation, it in fact lays its only true foundation. Lacoste presents two considerations as to why diverting ourselves from the world does not entail our taking leave of ethics, but rather makes that ethical engagement possible. In the first place, it is crucial to note that well before we have decided to try to take some distance from it, the world is already far from a moral place. It is not a place governed by courage and goodwill. Cowardice, self-interest, and indifference are the rule, even if many people are willing to do almost anything to convince others that isn't the case. Thus, if the world is not a place where sincerity reigns, then far from resting content with what is considered quotian, we must take leave of that daily milieu, quote, to discover our responsibilities in the world, end quote. Liturgy does not silence our ethical duties in the world. It brings them to light. For if we never climb out of indifference ourselves in this ethical sense, how are we to help others do so too? Because selfishness and egoism underlie the world, if we are to realize our ethical responsibility to others, doing so will require that we first take distance from the world, for the world is what reinforces the egocentric attitude that it is acceptable to have an eye only toward ourselves. This leads to Lacoste's second consideration. Though liturgy divests us of an obsession with the things of the world, it does not for that veil our duties to others. It does not involve taking leave from the world entirely. It simply deprives the world of a significance that would otherwise envelop us. It reorganizes our time so that we may see the world in a new light. One exists, Lacoste will say, quote, from one's absolute future onward, end quote. The time we now inhabit centers not on our own concerns. The present is staged by the ultimate end of God's kingdom. Everything is reconfigured by a time in which our worldly concerns are subordinated to a relative rather than an absolute status. Genuine moral experience accordingly commences when, and only when, we have taken our distance from the world since until that happens, the evils we face will go unchallenged, owing to our apathy or our fear. Quote, Our absolute future thus tells us today who we are and what our place is. The world is not given to us as a homeland. Only the kingdom can be a homeland for us, and we do not live in the kingdom, even if its order is not simply transcendent to that of the world and death, end quote. But what commands our attention in a time where, having taken leave of the cares of the world, we exist before God? What occurs when, rather than descending into the thick of everyday life, we first direct our attention to the kingdom of heaven? Lacoste named such an experience that of the wake. One keeps watch, but not over the things of the routines and tasks attending the day's commitments. Instead, 
one is free to linger on the things of God. We strip ourselves of our banal encumberments and linger on our divine vocation. Of course, this is not the only kind of nocturnal watch one can possibly keep. The party-goer shares the night with the servant of God. But as Lacoste notes, where the, quote, reveler also keeps wake by night, the one who enacts liturgy stays up to be with God. After seeing to our day's duties, we remain in possession of a fundamental right at night to spend time doing something else, quote, philosophy, writing, poetry, or praying, end quote, are Lacoste's examples. In the solitude of these quiet night watches, we are alone with our thoughts before God. No one is there to trouble us, no one is there to intrude himself, and so we can meditate on the laws of God without interruption. When we let, our, let down our guard and expose ourselves to God, we take stock of the day that has just ended to the extent it is possible, the one that is to come tomorrow. It is a time of both rejuvenation and resolution, of retrospection and preparation, a time of, quote, coming back to ourselves, end quote, to gather what has been dispersed during the commitments of the day. There is thus a patience required in keeping wake, and it is a distinctive kind of patience. Lacoste observes that many of our daytime activities require their own kind of patience, waiting for a train, or for a visit from a friend, or for a letter in the mail. Yet waiting on God in prayer requires a different kind of endurance. The commitment involves a different resolve from the passivity it ultimately enacts, I must wait to hear from God, requires a powerful exercise of freedom. We must choose, without the least trace of guile, to empty ourselves of anything that might direct our focus away from what God wants to tell us. Prayer, Lacoste notes, can sometimes be as much about trying to hear from God as it is telling God what we wish to say. But when it is a question of straining to hear God, rather than unburdening ourselves on him, how are we to do so? As before, Lacoste emphasizes that our relation to the absolute, that's what term he uses for God, exposition is his technical term for that relation, unfurls by the logic of inexperience and not feeling. In that respect, he will take the side of Hegel over Schelemacher. There's a section here where I get into a little bit about how he's trying to come up with an idea of paradoxical sense in which we can relate ourselves to God even if it doesn't involve what's typically associated with religious experience because he wants to say that the bounds of that relation can exceed what we feel. But I'm going to skip that. If you want to get more into that, we could, we could talk about it. A puzzlement may persist. What exactly is this non-time of the wake and of liturgy more generally? Contrasting it with the temporality of Dasein, Lacoste is careful to observe that, quote, if care reigns over the time of being in the world, end quote, the wake's time is a time in which, divested of a preoccupation with ourselves, quote, it can nevertheless offer us the joys of definitive peace here and now, end quote. There is a mode of feeling involved in such experience, Lacoste readily acknowledges, Yet the field of liturgical experience is governed by a logic not of consciousness and the pure appearance of phenomena, but instead an order of mediation. Here, existing in the presence of God involves a theoretical knowledge in a roughly Hegelian sense to be specified. So he goes on to a discussion about how this sort of provokes us to the conceptual work of doing theology, that because there's a certain absence involved in the way in which God makes himself present to us, 
that deficit is sort of part of what calls us to thinking about it. In Hegel's theology, revelation is said to have completed itself at Easter, where biblical faith maintains that the kingdom of God is not yet fully realized as we await the return of Christ, the resurrection of the body, and the final judgment. But for Hegel, for whom there is no second coming left to await because the kingdom of God is already here, the eschaton is realizable in those who will reconcile themselves back to the infinite through theoretical knowledge of Geist's history, absolute spirit. Needless to say, the Hegelian conception of salvation is an intellectual elitism. Regardless of however one understands the particulars of its vision, there can be no doubt that it is available only to those wise enough to comprehend the theoretical knowledge belonging to absolute knowledge. For everyone else, they will have to be satisfied with the myth of revealed religion. Hegel's God is not at all a God of the simple and the humble, but one of the theoretically wise. Here, Lacoste objects to Hegel just as Kierkegaard had, had himself beforehand. For while Lacoste agrees that Hegel was broadly correct to deprioritize de the role of religious experience as it was elevated by someone like Schleiermacher, he nevertheless rejects the idea that true knowledge of God is inconsistent with the axioms of biblical faith. We cannot know all there is to know about God here in this life through the concept. We must await the eschaton that lies beyond the world we presently know and experience. Thus, while Lacoste will note that the theologian can also be a saint, he insists that someone is not a saint simply because one is a theologian. For as he notes, quote, the most sublime mastery of knowledge is not sufficient to bring about man's accomplishment, end quote. Hence, against the Hegelian view, it must be insisted that history is not over because Christ has not yet returned for the last day. And a metaphor rich with nuance, Lacoste will say that, where Hegel's schema of salvation collapses Easter into Calvary, liturgical experience preserves the cross and the resurrection as two separate events. The resurrection of our bodies has yet to take place, and so our history, contrary to what Hegel contends, is not already finished. If the reconciled man of Hegel meets with the eschaton here in the time that leads to death with no eye toward a future beyond this existence, for Lacoste, that is not the case, there is still a promise yet to be given. As he explains, quote, reconciled existence takes place, therefore, in an interim between eschatological blessings already granted and the blessings that still remain within an economy of the promise, end quote. God is given in the conceptual form of thought, yet there is a fuller revelation that must remain withheld from us until the resurrection. Thus, while the Hegelian sage is someone said already to be reconciled to existence, for what history holds out nothing still outstanding, for the one who enacts the liturgical reduction, time keeps the form of a promise. I'm gonna skip ahead to the, the conclusion. Lacoste will name this mode of temporality the next to last. And if the figure best epitomizing such time is not the Hegelian sage, then whom, according to Lacoste, does? Lacoste contends that it is the fool for Christ, the fool performs the important function of reminding us that theories have practical implications and that it is these practical implications that are above all the most crucial. The fool may lack a concept of God that Hegelian theor theoretical knowledge involves, but his existence is supremely worthy of the God whom he imitates. 
The fool is a deeply subversive character because he deploys a logic that strikes at the heart of the wisdom of the world's claim to absolute legitimacy, transposing the question of, with, of what wisdom itself involves to a territory that makes theoretical knowers uncomfortable. In no longer desiring to belong to the world or live for the world, the fool exemplifies a deeply unsettling image of human existence to those who, enthralled by the world and its wisdom, wish to locate the purpose of human existence solely within the time that leads to death. Encountering the fool forces someone who lives as Dasein, or the mortal, to ask himself a disquieting question. Is the fool simply deceived, or am I blind to what he sees, to what I do not want to see? As Lacoste clarifies, the fool is thus a minimal man. Quote, It is thus in the form of the minimal man that the fool confronts us, in the form of a neighbor and whom we perhaps hesitate to recognize in the proper sense of the words, a fellow being, end quote. The fool is not a philosopher, a scholar, a politician, a lawyer, or a businessman, at least not primor primarily so. He effaces himself to such an extent that in the eyes of the world, he may be nothing at all. He makes no effort to leave his mark on the world, for the world is something from which he has nothing to gain. He chooses to dispossess himself of precisely what everyone else around him covets. What to others is the substance of existence is to the fool something relative. Titles, fame, money, comfort, respect, these matter to such a little extent that he's willing to leave off from seeking them. As Lacoste goes on, to uh, goes on to say, understandably, such a person will not be popular. He may be hated and misunderstood. Indeed, in a suggestion that I'm going to return to basically right now, Lacoste concludes his discussion of the fool by claiming that through his decision to suffer humiliation and persecution, the joy that inevitably results may in fact be, quote, the fundamental mood of pre-estatological experience, unquote. If it is not a necessity that the humanity of man be defined by an anxious time leading to death, why do we witness such despair and cynicism all around us? How is liturgy reconcilable with the fact of the prevalence of nihilism? The man who beholds himself solely in the mirror of time cannot come to a reconciled existence. Uh, if, as Lacoste says, quote, nihilism makes it so that nothing is worth anything longer, end quote, then what is worth doing here and now in the time that leads to death? If we can be reconciled to God in liturgical experience, but we nevertheless must await the final promise of eternal life here in a world with suffering and injustice, what are we to do? Is ours a time that calls, as the later Heidegger himself would suggest, for thinking? Or does it perhaps call for something else? For his own part, Lacoste will concede that the theoretical knowledge of theology has its value and that it is worthwhile for those who are able and willing to possess it. And yet, in a recent exchange with some of his most notable readers, he has tantalizingly suggested that, in the last analysis, even theological thinking is insufficient for overcoming nihilism. Noting that the task of thinking is only fulfilled at the limits of history, quote, but that such a frontier is blurred by the liturgical reduction's capacity to inscribe us within the logic of love, end quote. Lacoste proposes, quite boldly, that there lies a horizon open to us beyond even thinking. Quote, it is not enough to think, 
he says. Indeed, in challenging the assumption that it is thinking that is able to overcome nihilism, Lacoste returns our attention to the figure of the fool. We overcome nihilism not through theoretical knowledge won by theology or through social revolution, but individually, in secret, and hence in truth, in the simple act of doing what is right through Christ. Thinking thought to its limit, we run up against an end whose paradoxical yet profound wisdom Lacoste gives expression in the last line of experience in the absolute. We assume who we most are as human, we read there, when man accepts a, quote, existence in the image of God who has taken humiliation upon himself when he accepts a canonic existence, end quote. In having to decide between being in the world and facing God, man must decide which of two lives he will prefer in the time that leads to death, a restlessness that seeks contentment by glorying in its shame or the affliction of a patience that endures in hope. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thomistic Studies podcast. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, and leave a five-star review, which helps others discover the show. The Center for Thomistic Studies is based at the University of St. Thomas in Houston, Texas, and it is the only graduate philosophy program in the United States uniquely focused on the thought of St. Thomas. If you are interested in future talks and events at the Center, please like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Thomistic Studies to receive regular updates and news. For more information about the Center, please visit us online at stthom.edu slash cts. That's s-t-t-h-o-m dot e-d-u slash c-t-s. Thank you.